Um, so thank you all very much um, for coming. It's quite early on a Saturday morning uh, to be thinking about medieval literature, uh, but I'm really delighted that, that you've all um, come here. Uh, my name is Dr Nicholas Perkins. Uh, I'm a lecturer in the English faculty in medieval English literature uh, and a fellow of St Hugh's College. Um, so I'll just go back to my title. Today um, I'm going to be talking about medieval romance and the gift um, of storytelling. Um, and both of those words are quite important um, in the title, thinking about storytelling and the kind of art of storytelling in medieval romance stories, um, but also more particularly uh, about gifts themselves, actual objects that are given, but also gift as a way of thinking about storytelling um, as well. So, in a way, that topic relates um, to some of my current research projects, which are really about gifts, objects, uh, exchanges, and uh, narrative uh, in, in medieval culture, especially uh, in romances. But about 18 months ago, um, I was also uh, lucky enough to be a guest curator uh, at the Bodleian Library for an exhibition uh, which we called The Romance of the Middle Ages. Um, and in that exhibition, um, we looked at medieval romance right from its uh, development, especially, say, in Western Europe in the 12th um, century, right from there up through the rest of the Middle Ages, very familiar names such as Chaucer, uh, the, the, the author who wrote the great poems Sir Gawain uh, and the Green Knight, um, through uh, to the 16th century and the survival of romances uh, in the early modern period, um, Spencer's Fairy Queen, uh, Shakespeare, uh, Cervantes, um, and we didn't really want to stop there because medieval romance kind of has this afterlife that continues right through um, to the present day. So we had a little bit of space in our exhibition room, we just kind of get, kept going uh, through to medieval revivalism, we could call it that antiquarianism and medievalism in the 17th and 18th centuries, <coughs> figures like, um, well, like Sir Walter Scott, William Morris, uh, Burne Jones, um, and then into a century that um, most of us are, are more familiar with, um, the 20th century, um, and more Oxford connections um, as well. Um, people who were students and teachers um, at Oxford, like J.R.R. Tolkien, um, C.S. Lewis, um, and then a generation or some generations uh, of people who'd studied, especially studied English, uh, sometimes classics, um, at Oxford, perhaps been taught by uh, Lewis uh, or Tolkien. Certainly if they'd studied English in the middle of the 20th century, perhaps some of you also studied English you know, in, in, in that period, the syllabus um, that they would have taken was very much shaped in uh, faculty meetings uh, by Tolkien um, and, and Lewis, um, dividing up the course. There used to be something called Course 1, Course 2 and Course 3, and it enabled loads of work on medieval texts, medieval literature, um, editing, looking at the fantastic wealth of manuscripts which are here in the Bodleian. Um, so there I'm thinking about writers such as Susan Cooper, uh, who wrote the Dark is Rising series, things that I used to love um, reading um, as a child. Uh, Alan Garner, who I think studied classics um, at Oxford, author of The Weird Stone of Brisingerman, um, and, and so on, and so on. Diana Wynne-Jones is another um, author who's, who springs to mind, um, the author of Howl's Moving Castle, uh, amongst other things. So the exhibition um, tried to tell that story right up to the present day, and in fact, 
I think the day before we opened the exhibition, we were just trying to rearrange the last bits uh, in the last cabinets. And I had to pop across the road to Blackwell's to just buy a few more uh, paperback copies of things to put in our, our exhibition cases. I think I bought um, uh, the latest edition uh, of one of the Harry Potter um, books to go in there. Um, something else that we had, also with Oxford Connections and, and that sort of keeps bringing romance sort of back uh, into um, our own popular culture, uh, if you like, something I very much enjoyed having in the exhibition um, was a typescript uh, of the film uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, it's Terry Jones's copy uh, of the script, something that he, you know, had was brandishing around in, I think it must have been in Scotland, I think, where they filmed uh, that film in the mid-70s. Uh, and it has pencil markings and coffee stains and drawings and all sorts of things um, all over it. But reading the script of that film, perhaps alongside some, you know, genuine medieval Arthurian romances, the film is in many ways a brilliant parody of the silliness uh, of a lot of those, uh, of those romances. And in fact... Um, the picture I was just showing you here um, is from a, a big manuscript, 14th century manuscripts, French manuscripts uh, in the Bodleian, Emmys um, Rawlinson QB6. Um, it's one of those manuscripts that you, you definitely need two hands to get it to the table uh, and open it. And it's um, a big compilation of Arthurian stories, um, what we call the Vulgate cycle uh, of Arthurian romances, uh, including the Grail story, including the, uh, the love affair between Lancelot and Guinevere, uh, and the, uh, the Mort Artu um, section as well, um, uh, the, the, the collapse of the Round Table and the death of Arthur. And there are some episodes, of course, which always are verging on, <coughs> on comedy and deadly seriousness as well. I mean, this particular scene, you probably recognise um, Lancelot, desperate, you know, to fulfil um, his quest. I think Guinevere's been captured by someone else and he has to get to her. He doesn't have a horse. He leaps onto a cart and asks the carter uh, to, to, to take him on. Later on, he's going to be upbraided uh, by Guinevere for, for, for this sort of unchivalric act. And so the picture sort of shows this. This scene, this incongruous scene of the knight, the greatest knight in the world, just taking a ride on a cart. Um, and some of you who studied uh, French literature may know of some of the great um, romances from the 12th century by Chrétien de Troyes, one of the great romance writers. One of his best-known romances is called uh, Le Chevalier à la Charrette, uh, the knight of the cart, or, or Lancelot, as we have it. So the world of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail isn't actually a million miles away from some of the uh, antics uh, that, that go on in these very fine-looking uh, uh, manuscript pages as well. So Terry Jones, um, of course, studied English uh, here in Oxford. Uh, one of his tutors was uh, Bruce Mitchell. I don't know um, any of you come across a very distinguished Anglo-Saxonist. He was very happy to lend us um, the script. And we also borrowed uh, a manuscript um, of a book by um, another um, author who studied here, Philip Pullman, who I know that his best-known work is perhaps more linked to an epic tradition. You might think of, of Milton and um, the, the, the uh, Philip Pullman's um, books. But there's a lovely... Um, I was going to say children's book, but none of his books are only for children, really. Uh, there's a book by Philip Pullman called The Scarecrow and His Servant, which is a kind of picaresque novel, very much in the tradition um, of Don Quixote. Um, 
And um, I wanted to put that alongside <coughs> Cervantes and alongside um, another very strange book that we had in our exhibition, uh, which was called Sir Billy of Billericay, um, a parody of Don Quixote uh, from uh, I think the late 17th, early 18th century of an Essex knight who, come, who, get, who comes up to, to no good. And as uh, someone who brought up not, not a million miles away from Billericay myself, I, I wanted to have that in. Um, again, Philip Pullman very generously lent, lent it to us. And one of those Oxford connections um, sort of really helps to enrich not only, um, I suppose, the, um, the exhibition side, the sort of public facing and, and celebratory side of, of the work of something like the Bodleian, but research work um, as well. Um, in fact, he lives um, in the same village as me, just outside uh, Oxford, and he was opening our local playgrounds. We uh, had a, a, some new play equipment, and there was uh, Philip Pullman opening it. So a brief conversation helped to secure this manuscript uh, for the Bodleian's um, exhibition. In the report of the opening, our parish magazine, I thought quite touchingly described Philip Pullman as a local author, um, <laughs> which perhaps doesn't quite do him justice, but nevertheless. <coughs> OK. So now I'm going to kind of come back into um, the, 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 the talk itself and just start by saying, what do I mean when I say medieval romance? We might think we know what that means. Um, um, we know now perhaps what a romance means, buying a romance which is actually more like Mills and Boone or something like that. We might know what, say, romantic comedy means uh, if we go to the cinema uh, and, and see it. What does medieval romance mean? It's actually a genre that's very, very difficult to define and to pin down. That's really the point of genres. They're always fuzzy um, at the edges. And one of the reasons for that is its huge popularity and the way in which motifs from romance, like uh, exchanges, like uh, the quest, you know, like um, um, conflicts perhaps between parents and children, um, but also religious conflicts as well, and conflicts of loyalty, how those um, sorts of ways of writing find their way into all sorts of different texts that we wouldn't normally associate with, with uh, romances. So it's not only knights and ladies and castles, there are all sorts of other things, political work that's going on in these texts as well. But in any case, We'd call medieval romance this great tradition of storytelling in the vernacular that flourished in Europe between about the 12th century and the 16th. And as I've mentioned, it forms the basis for many other kinds of storytelling. Um, we call some of Shakespeare's last great plays, the, the, the late romances, for example, nearly all of them based on very traditional folk tale-like stories, some specifically um, through the medieval um, tradition. And in medieval French, telling a story en romance really just meant telling it in your own language as opposed to Latin, so speaking or writing in the vernacular. And many English romances, many medieval English romances, are adapted from or translated quite closely from French um, texts. Romances um, very often wrap themselves around the shape of a particular protagonist's life. We think of that when we think of the romance um, hero but also perhaps the intertwined lives of lovers, focusing, focusing on crucial moments of testing, of division, and of return, return to family, return to inheritance perhaps, um, that mark the protagonist's relationship uh, with family or community. Romances also celebrate the pleasure and the power and sometimes the danger 
of storytelling itself. And the central uh, figures of the best-known romances were known throughout Europe, uh, both in narrative stories and in visual um, art. And um, so I'll, I'll take you few, through a few um, examples in a moment. Here, of course, we've got Lancelot, one of the greatest um, of those figures. But Lancelot and Guinevere, Tristan um, and Isert, uh, King Arthur, of course, Alexander the Great with his conquests and spin-off romances that, that, that come from those, Charlemagne and, and a whole load of spin-offs um, that occur uh, from the Charlemagne stories, um, including uh, Roland. Um, um, but there are also figures who are perhaps less familiar to us now, uh, but in medieval England still had huge sort of cachet and power, particularly in their own areas. So Guy of Warwick uh, is a good example of that. Uh, Bevis of Hampton or Southampton, uh, another great local hero, if you like. Um, Havelock and uh, King Horn. Um, Havelock, um, particularly associated um, with the sort of um, uh, eastern um, coast, um, uh, Grimsby, uh, especially where part of the story um, is set. As I said before, romance is also a genre that shades into many other kinds of storytelling with different sorts of claims to truth including political history, chronicle and epic. So it's not, it's not unusual sometimes to be reading a medieval, quite a serious medieval chronicle uh, or epic type story and within that come to a scene or a, a series of episodes which is much more reminiscent of romance and it shifts our kind of expectations uh, of what we gain from that story, what messages it tells us and the claim to truth that the author is actually um, giving um, us sort of slipping into romance as a genre can do different things for you um, as, a, as a writer. You can get across different sorts of messages. You're not so tied to other kinds of expectations of historical veracity, for example. So um, I'll just show you a few slides now which help to, um, um, help to give you some examples of some of those figures and some of those texts that I was talking about. Um, so another famous pair of, uh, of lovers and, and heroes, Tristan and Isert. And this, um, this is one of the well-known Chertsey um, tiles um, now in the British uh, Museum, most of them. Chertsey uh, in Surrey, just, just off the M25. And uh, these are some of the, really some of the finest um, tiles that, that we have from this period uh, um, in, in Europe, really. Um, there's large sets of them. Obviously, most, many of them are, are broken, and you can see that this one's been sort of pieced together. There's a series of scenes which um, show Richard the Lionheart and Saladin. Uh, there's a series of scenes from the Tristan story. There are other kind of decorative um, scenes as well. And um, they're actually found in the uh, remains of Chertsey Abbey. And it seems very unusual for an abbey to have uh, floor tiles showing the story of Tristan uh, and Isert. Um, now, it may be that that's through royal patronage. They might have come as a gift uh, from a king and, you know, what he wanted goes. But it also may be because medieval um, sort of clerics were actually very, very inventive in finding ways of reading stories um, ethically. You know, the, the Tristan Isert story, we think of it as a, a story of adulterous love, of uh, betrayal and so on. But you can turn that around, of course, and make it into a moral story, a moral lesson, you know, not to do the things uh, that these guys are doing. But I suspect there's a sneaking amount of enjoyment there um, as well. And in this, seem, this seems to be 
uh, a scene that, that, that occurs in the narrative where um, Tristan is disguised uh, and Isert's there in the boat and um, it's connected to a part of the narrative where um, Isert's about to kind of go on trial and she has to swear uh, that she hasn't committed um, adultery. Uh, Tristan dresses up in disguise. She has to kind of cross a bog or climb off a boat or something and he offers to help her. He, he's dressed as a pilgrim or a poor person. And in helping her, uh, they fall over together and sort of roll around on the ground. And later on, when she has to swear her oath, she says, I promise faithfully that no man has been, been between my legs, oh, except for that guy who helped me and we fell over. Of course, it's Tristan. And so, it's effectively, she has her fingers crossed behind her back while she's saying that oath and she gets away with it. And the stories, in a sense, make us complicit um, in, that, uh, in that deception um, as well. Um, so Tristan is that, uh, coming back to the same manuscript here, um, another um, passage from, from the, uh, the Grail uh, legend. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who this is, but they're going to come to no good uh, quite soon. Uh, so bloody violence going on there. Um, Alexander the Great, um, who I mentioned, who a number of romances sort of revolve around him and his conquests. Um, this is an example from possibly the most beautiful manuscripts in the Bodleian, um, MS uh, uh, Bodley two, uh, 264, page after page of it, uh, with this sumptuous um, illumination. Uh, and a, a reproduction just doesn't really do it justice because that is gold and it absolutely shines um, <coughs> under the light. Um, it's a manuscript that was produced in the mid-14th century. Um, it's signed uh, by its, um, its artist um, towards um, the end. It's possible that it's belonged to someone in the French royal family. And it's also possible, one of the latest sort of theories goes, that it might have been captured as part of um, sort of booty in battle um, in, uh, in the second half of the 14th century during the Hundred Years' War. You remember that, uh, I think it's at the Battle of Poitiers, uh, the French king himself was captured uh, by the English. And um, there's, there's all sorts of ransom payments and treasure that, that would have gone along with that, and it may well have come to England um, at that time. It was altered around about 1400 in England, so we know it was there um, by then. Uh, here's a close-up of, of that page. An incredible detail, um, and you can see here, um, so, um, oh, <coughs> you can see here Alexander, he's fighting, I think this is King Porus. Um, a lovely example of the way that these texts and uh, pictures sort of have a playful quality about them as well. So within the scene, uh, it's framed by this architectural um, design with uh, women sort of poking their heads out, watching the action, as if a kind of audience for the narrative within the narrative um, itself. Um, and there are all sorts of other things going on uh, here. There's someone with a, a parrot of some kind. Up at the top of the page, um, it's hard to see, but up here, uh, these kind of strange creatures are pruning the foliate border of the manuscript. This one has a saw, and it's kind of cutting off that branch, which is sort of just growing a bit too much. There's sort of a bit of pruning going on. Um, and also you can see the artist experimenting with what an elephant looks like uh, just here. These are elephants um, with their lovely twisty trunks. And all of this um, sort of castle-like structure, I think, is meant to be um, being held up by the elephants. Um, I mean, of course, elephants did go into battle, um, but the, um, um, the proportions are slightly unusual there, let's say. 
Okay. Um, I mentioned Havelock um, before, and this, uh, sorry about the, it's slightly difficult to see the photograph here, um, but this wax seal um, is the medieval seal of the town of Grimsby. Um, in fact, again, when we mounted our exhibition, um, I wrote to uh, the town council, uh, the archivist in Grimsby, and said, you know, I, I hear that you've got this seal, which shows Havelock, you know, would you lend it to us? And um, what they did is lent us uh, a kind of mould that was made from the original metal um, seal. And um, uh, one of the curators from, from the Bodleian, Andrew Honey, uh, and I uh, went down and experimented trying to make the, the seal from it. So we had this sort of um, rubber mould and Andrew had a recipe for medieval sealing wax. <laughs> and um, we stirred it all up and heated it and poured it in. Um, <coughs> Needless to say, we didn't do this in the Bodleian. Uh, we're not allowed to do anything like that, it, actually inside the library. Um, and this was the, the, the result, not quite as fine as I'd, as I'd like. We'd have to sort of muck around with the recipe, I think, to get it better. But this is the seal of, of the town of Grimsby. Oh, um, and you can see just here, um, uh, there's an inscription. Um, Sigillum, the seal, communitatis of the community, the commune, the town, uh, Grimmebia, Grimsby. And this big figure in the centre is a character called Grimm, who appears in the romance Havelock. Uh, Havelock the Dane, a Danish uh, prince who um, is sort of um, orphaned and comes to England incognito. He's brought up by a fisherman called Grimm, and he later sort of comes to power and marries um, Goldbrew. So the lovers, or the, the heroes, there's Havelock just down there, and uh, Goldbrew, um, um, his wife, but really, for Grimsby, the town of Grimsby, Grimm gives them their founding you know, mythological figure. And so he's this great big guy uh, right in the middle here. And you can just see, probably, again, uh, something that also relates to romance narrative. Just at the top, a little hand coming down from the top. The hand of God, I suppose, touching down, um, directing um, events um, there, too. OK. Uh, Ah, just moving through a few, a few more examples. I mentioned Richard the Lionheart uh, with the Chertsey tiles. Um, <coughs> and this is a, an early printed book of a, a romance, uh, Richard uh, Coeur de Lyon, uh, all about Richard the Lionheart. Um, so it's really, a, it's quite a political text. It's an action hero, you know, war text rather than um, a sort of fluffy romance lovers. It's actually rather a, a horrifying text um, because it depicts scenes where Richard the Lionheart uh, eats the cooked bodies uh, of captured um, Muslim warriors, Saracens as they're called uh, in the text. He's ill one day and someone brings him what he thinks is a, a pork soup and it which turns out to be made from, from the body uh, of a captured warrior and he acquires a taste for this and so later on he cooks up um, prisoners and serves them back to ambassadors uh, from his opponents. Um, now, of course, there are all sorts of horrifying messages that that, that that gives, but there's also a kind of underlying structure of the narrative to do with conquest, to do with his rapacious appetite for power, and also a connection with the horrifying conditions that crusading uh, warriors faced um, uh, in, in, in that period. There are uh, historical examples of, of people who turn to cannibalism 
uh, when starved out, you know, garrisons who had no food left and ate whatever they, they possibly could and so on. So romance is there, we could say, give people a chance to explore very, very difficult and, uh, and powerful narratives without really being on the hook of, of, of history. You know, you can explore um, these sort of outrageous events without then having to, to, um, to justify them and go through all the detail um, and so on. It's sort of playful, but it's also very dangerous. Um, okay, and um, I think, let me just see. Yeah, finally, uh, in our sort of run of examples, a romance called The Lord Troy Book. The Lord Troy Book because uh, it's only known from this book, another meaty book in the Bodleian Library, um, MS Lord 595. Uh, it's a kind of epic romance style um, history of, of, of Troy. Um, and the writer here is very specifically wants to show how he's part of romance uh, and also to an extent distinguish himself away from other romances and claim that his story um, is the best. And this little bit around here, he mentions a whole load of romance heroes. It's quite difficult to see them all on the screen, but he says here, um, uh, many speaking of men that romance is rarer, uh, that were some team dochti in derda, that were, that were sort of bold in their fighting, the whale that God him leaf lent, uh, that now been dead and henes went, that they're dead and gone, of Bevis, Bevis of Hampton, Guy, and of uh, Gawain, of King Richard, Richard the Lionheart, uh, and of um, Ewain, uh, Owen in the Welsh tradition, um, of Tristram and of Percival, of Roland and so on and so on, uh, of Charles, i.e. Charlemagne. Um, so he mentions all these other romance heroes and then finally at the bottom of the page and, and over the page he says, well, actually none of them are any good compared to Hector, Achilles, all the great warriors of Troy. And so I'm going to sort of <laughs> set my text as, you know, apart from those by telling this really great story of the history of Troy. Um, this particular book, um, as you can see, um, had quite an ostentatious owner as well here in the 17th century. Uh, it's been signed probably not by him, but by a, a secretary. It's inscribed, uh, Liber Guillaume Lord, the book of William Lord, um, Archbishop of Canterbury and Chancellor of the University of Oxford, 1633. Even in those days, chancellors of the University of Oxford had other quite uh, time-consuming jobs that they had to, uh, to go to. Although I should think being Archbishop of Canterbury in the 17th century, perhaps it was as difficult as being chair of the BBC Trust, but, you know, it might come close. OK, so now um, I'd just like to move on um, to um, a, a particular example I'm going to sort of look at in a little bit more detail. Another book from the Bodleian, uh, MS Ashmole 45. So here... Um, I, Got a nice book <coughs> written in the, I suppose, the early 16th century, perhaps the 1520s, let's say. Um, this is the title page. Uh, it says up here, the story of the Earl of Toulouse. Um, we've got a, a, a little scene in the middle there. And at the bottom, um, two sort of monograms which spell out Maid Maria. You can probably just see there, you've got M and then A-I-D, and then Maria, all within that uh, little sign. So Maid um, Maria. It's written on paper, 
rather than the sort of much more expensive and sort of going out of fashion uh, parchment or skin. Um, it's also clearly a special book. Um, it's a gift book. A gift most likely from a, a well-to-do, a bourgeois uh, Londoner um, to perhaps to um, his fiancée um, or, or bride. Um, and this is where, when we're looking at, at texts like this, the field of English literature that I work in needs to draw on and go into all sorts of other fields, that of social history, if you like, art history, uh, what we now call book history or code ecology, the study of the book itself and, and you know, how book production changes, how that makes a difference to, to texts and so on as well. But let's just have a focus on the picture for, for a moment. Um, it shows a book being presented um, here, this, this one here, which I suppose in the fiction of the uh, picture is the very book that we are holding and, and reading. In a sense, to, to, to that extent, um, it's already done its job because by the time someone's received the book and opened it and looked at the picture, if you like, they've already moved one step on from the picture. You know, the, the, in the fiction of the picture, this lady has taken the book already and opened it and now she's seeing herself um, in, in the book. Um, you can see that there's a speech scroll here, very common sort of medieval usage. They didn't have speech bubbles necessarily, but they would put speech on a scroll uh, in, a, in a picture. And, the, um, and in the speech scroll, it says, Prenez en grey, uh, take willingly, please accept this gift. Some, some such phrase, like it's quite a common phrase, especially with gifts um, between lovers. Uh, uh, and it really means, you know, I'm sorry this might not come up to scratch, but I hope that you receive it with good grace. Um, we could imagine it might also potentially mean, or it ha might have an underlying meaning as well, of take this book and read it with pleasure. Um, given that it's a gift, likely to be uh, a gift between lovers or perhaps an engagement gift, we might think of a third meaning um, of the phrase, which might also be take me as a husband willingly uh, as well. So the, the, the gift, the action of the gift perhaps implies more than just you know, accepting a book. Perhaps we're all familiar with those circumstances where accepting a gift actually means more than that. It implies the beginning of a certain kind of relationship um, that we wouldn't necessarily have uh, with, with, with someone else. And there are moments in, in relationships where um, you might feel constrained to accept a gift but feel quite uncomfortable about it. You know, you're on business somewhere and you get given a gift, which actually is more than you really ought to accept, and you don't quite know what to do about it. You know, there are whole books written about the etiquette of, uh, of, of gift giving and, and, and receiving gifts, in, particularly in certain cultures. Okay. Um, yeah, the costume of the couple here shows something of their social status. So they are wealthy, but they're not aristocratic. Um, you know, as I say, this is sort of probably 1520s um, London. Um, we can also see, I won't go into it in detail, but at the top of the page there, a later owner has signed this book, William Brown. We know a little bit about him, William Brown of Tavistock, who was very interested in, in medieval English literature. He owned quite a, a number of manuscripts. Um, and the writing here, the particular style of decoration, also tells us something about the scribe. That type of, um, a, a, of initial making with all those, those sort of um, bold lines uh, you can also see in quite a number of bureaucratic and official and legal documents from this period of London. Um, around the time of Sir Thomas More, Cardinal Wolsey, their 
um, their civil service, if you like. Um, that's a style that's quite familiar from legal text. So it may well be that the scribe is a legal scribe who's copying a, 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 an English romance in his spare time for a bit of extra cash. Okay. So we just turn the page to the beginning of the romance. You can see again, quite a neat script, but not, you know, not hugely um, elaborate. We can kind of place it um, here um, in terms of its, uh, its social status, if you like, and its value. Um, quite a nice touch on this page. Can't really see it in this picture, but if I go closer, is that the scribe has actually signed his name into the beginning of the text. Uh, his name, M-O... R-G-A-N-U-S, Morganus, or Morgan. So this man is called Morgan, the, the, the actual scribe. Um, haven't been, scholars haven't quite been able to trace you know, exactly, um, who, exactly who he is, but um, that's his name. Um, he also gives his initials at, at the end of the text as well. I might come on to that. So here's a nice example of a, a meaningful book, we could call it, um, where... If we just read the text, the romance, the Earl of Toulouse, well, that's one thing. But this particular example, this particular book, which is now in the Bodleian, um, gives us a whole different set of understandings about this romance's initial audience. <coughs> the romance itself was probably written 100 or so years before um, this manuscript. But you can see here how these stories carry on developing, they carry on giving to different sets of audiences over time. And in a culture still uh, where... Um, manuscript books are common, not quite so common because printing, uh, printing of romances is, is becoming more and more familiar. Here someone's made a particular effort to uh, make personal this book um, and sort of dedicate it to that particular person. It's a sort of equivalent of those um, you know, compilation cassettes that you might give you know, to your boyfriend or girlfriend um, in the <laughs> 1980s. Um, of course I know nothing about that um, okay yeah just one more thing uh, which, which relates to, to this and I'll just see if I can um, get out of this and show you a picture um, here we go something just very quickly I wanted to show you which um, relates to the exhibition and this is part of our uh, continuing uh, online exhibition so you can go and have a look at a whole load of these things um, later on if you want to. Um, one of the things we had on display, perhaps one of the smallest things in our exhibition was this ring. Um, let's just see if we can make it, yeah here we go. I uh, don't know if we can make it um, bigger. Um, Okay. That's, oh, that's too big, isn't it? Um, okay, that's probably fine. I'll go back to show you the stones in a minute. But a um, little ring from around about the same time. And what I want to, to sort of suggest here is what I'm saying about gift culture, gift giving, and uh, meaningful objects and stories isn't only limited, if you like, to literature. So not. I'm not only thinking that what I'm saying about these things, or what I'm writing about these things, is only possible when you're looking at, um, at poetry, for example. This ring, if you like, acts in very much the same way as the book that we were just looking at. Um, it has two um, stones um, on it. I better just close the zoom and show you here. Um, two stones there, which I think symbolise two people, two lovers um, together. Um, 
And underneath the, the bezel here, un right underneath inside the ring, it's possible to sort of slide a compartment out, slide a kind of cover out. So there's a, uh, behind the stones is hollow. And you could have fitted in there <coughs> just a, a little lock of hair, a scrap of fabric, something like that as a, as a keepsake um, as well. Can't, you can't really see that very well at, at all, but um, when we went to the V&A to have a look at some rings to see if we could borrow them for the exhibition, th that just really struck us as being um, both beautiful and, and really lovely sort of story behind it. Now inside, as you can see, there's some writing. Um, this is what's known as a posy ring. Uh, and so the writing, of course, would sort of sit next to the skin. It's like a secret message from the giver um, to the receiver. And this particular ring says, du tout mon coeur, with all my heart. Um, and so again, this tiny object is almost a medieval romance in itself. That sort of sense of secrecy and intrigue, the lovers together, the symbolic stones, um, the object, you know, the lock of hair or the fabric or something that would be sort of slipped um, just inside there as, as well. Um, it's um, this particular object. Um, let me just get back to uh, sorry. That particular ring um, belonged to um, a woman called Joan um, Evans, um, who I got quite interested in. She was um, a student at my own college, St Hughes, and later became the college librarian just after the First World War. Um, she. Her, she was the half-sister of um, Arthur Evans, the, the archaeologist who um, excavated Knossos. And she, she really was one of the sort of founding scholars who identified um, jewellery, clothing, um, social sort of mores and dress as an important part of social history as well. And her books on medieval France and on the history of jewellery were really fundamental um, to the development of, of, of that subject uh, as an academic um, sort of di discipline, if you like. So her collection of jewels and, and so on has gone to uh, the Victorian Albert Museum. Okay. Um, <coughs> so, romances themselves then are punctuated by gifts exchanged, promises pledged, and the return of an object or a person that has been in circulation for most of the narrative. And some of the terms I'm using there, uh, as many of you may well know, are drawn from anthropology. When we think about gift giving and gift exchange, anthropologists have been debating this and studying it um, for generations, really. Um, I've got a quotation um, I just want to read to you now. Um, oh, that's just, oh, this is the end of the Earl of Toulouse, just, just so you know. Uh, the scribe again has says, he's put his initials here, M.D., just there, and he says, finis, finished, and uh, sic transit gloria mundi, thus, um, you know, the glory of the world uh, declines or goes. And then underneath, a later owner has written a recipe to make a good pudding, um, <laughs> which um, is it's a bit of a funny recipe, actually. It's not really a sweet pudding. You know, it's got all sorts of herbs and, and things in, so it's a sort of, um, uh, a, a, you know, a meat pudding with sage and rosemary and, and things like that in it. Okay, so now I've got something um, a, a, about the gift. A book by Lewis Hyde, which is called The Gift, um, and it tries to think through and summarise some of the anthropological uh, material. And I just want to sort of read this out to you. You may keep your Christmas present, but it ceases to be a gift in the true sense unless you've given something else away. As it is passed along, the gift may be given back to the original donor, but this is not essential. Uh, in fact, it's better if the gift is not returned, 
but is given instead to some new third party. The only essential is this, the gift must always move. <coughs> there are other forms of property that stand still that mark a boundary or resist momentum, but the gift keeps going. And that relates to that feeling also, of course, that we have. If someone gives you a gift, then it's quite rude, of course, isn't it, to give it back. You know, we all have that sort of, that, uh, those, those sort of urban myths of, you know, gifts that auntie so-and-so has given you and you end up sort of wrapping it up and giving it back to the same person or whatever. But I think, I think I'm right in saying in Japan, for example, many families have whole, you know, have a big walk-in cupboard of gifts uh, that they've been given that they are then, they're, go they're then going to recirculate. It's just part of the culture. It's a social message, you know, which says something, you know, on arrival um, to your host, you know, in certain kinds of social situations. That's why anthropologists have often sort of honed in on the gift as something which is really important to human society, but can also tell us something <coughs> distinctive about different human societies. Um, so this paragraph tries to summarise part of a very well-known book um, written in the 1920s um, by a scholar called Marcel Mauss, which is called The Gift, um, Essay sur le don. Um, and um, since the 20s, at least, um, gift giving and gift theory has been a kind of big part of anthropological theory. Um, I'm, I'm going to read another um, sort of paragraph of thinking uh, about this as well by more recent philosopher and theorist um, Jacques Derrida. His book, Given Time, in French, Donner le Temps, um, thinks particularly about the relationship of time to gift giving, which is also quite important. Someone buys you something or gives you something. If you immediately you know, go back into your house and find the, the right money and give it to them, then it kind of stops being a gift and you're, as it were, refusing it, you know, um, as a gift. Uh, if, for example, you know, you're short of milk and your neighbour, you know, on your, on your staircase, you know, says, oh, you know, that's fine, you can have some milk or coffee. Remember that famous coffee advert, you know, where the, was it the man or the woman sort of knocks on the door and says, oh, you know, they've run out of coffee. If you were immediately to go back and return that, then it kind of stops being a gift. It becomes more of a commercial transaction, you know, all square. You buy a drink for someone in the pub. If they make sure that at the end of the evening, you know, they absolutely have bought you back exactly what you bought them, that doesn't, doesn't really count. But a week later, a month later, you know, you're now into a sort of gift-giving relationship, which becomes a friendship. You know, oh, it's my round now. And there's a, there's a big difference, and we sort of, without realising it, we sort of know those differences. So time makes a big difference. And what Derrida argues, um, or try, tries to argue in his um, book, Donné Le Ton, is that when we really scrutinise it, we might think that gifts are given with no obligation of return. If you like, the definition of a gift must be that we don't want anything back, otherwise it wouldn't be a gift. But... In fact, gifts always operate, they always circulate in an economic system. So when we, if we give a, a Christmas present to our brother, let's say, and they don't give anything back, well, you know, you, don't, you might not say anything, but actually you think, well, come on. Um, so, and, and actually, as with Christmas approaching, you know, many families do calculate quite carefully, you know, uh, what kind of value of gift is appropriate for certain kinds of relationships. So Derrida really argues, well, how can there be gifts if gifts have to be without the expectation of return or without the expectation of, you know, reward? How can you sort of work um, with that? So, um, but 
he's French, and it's, he says it in a slightly more complicated way. <laughs> now, the gift, if there is any, as says Derrida, would no doubt be related to economy. One can't treat the gift, this goes without saying, without treating this relation to economy, even the money economy. But is not the gift, if there is any, also that which interrupts economy, that which in suspending economic calculation no longer gives rise to exchange. So almost the opposite of what we might think. It must not circulate. It must not be exchanged. It must not, in any case, be exhausted as a gift by the process of exchange, by the movement of circulation of the circle in the form of return to the point of departure, i.e., it's got to come back in some way, but it mustn't be sort of drained of its energy as a gift. Uh, but in doing so. If the figure of the circle is essential to economics, the gift must remain aneconomic. Okay. So this, I think, provides quite a rich scenario for thinking about storytelling, for thinking about romances. We know that when we think about the end of stories, we often think of a denouement, a payback, we might call it. So stories themselves set up expectations. They kind of set up exchanges, which then come back you know, things come home to roost at the end of stories as well. So just for the, for the remainder of the talk, I'm going to talk um, quite briefly about um, three uh, different romances uh, from medieval um, Britain. My first example uh, is the Anglo-Norman text, The Romance of Horn, um, a wonderful, lengthy romance, not very well <coughs> known because it's written in, in Anglo-Norman French, um, but a beautiful text. In this text, um, there's a huge fascination with luxury objects, with gifts, with exchanges, with all sorts of, um, of things. But right at the beginning, Horn, the hero, is found uh, in a garden with, with various children uh, by marauding Saracens again. Uh, so Malbroin, uh, this, this sort of enemy, found the children in their refuge where all 15 had taken, hidden themselves from fear. He took them all and bound them, but did no harm to Horn. God gave Horn this gift um, that all seeing him would at once pity and have mercy on, on him. <clears throat> so in direct opposition to this diabolical um, figure of Malbrain, Horn is described as like an angel or like the day star rising. He's a sort of gift to the narrative. He sort of suddenly arrives. He's a boy, he's a child, but he's already a kind of fully formed hero um, as well. Anyway, Horn and his fellow children are cast out to sea in a boat, but God protects them and they're washed up on the shore of Brittany. And they're treated nearly like commodities, so there's a debate as to whether they should be sold as slaves. But eventually Horn tells his own story and he's admitted, if you like, into the social life um, of the court and brought up. In effect, he becomes a sort of gift to that environment and that gift nourishes relationships um, with his own history and between members of the court um, as well. Um, he grows up to be you know, a fine hero uh, and warrior, but before that he also becomes entangled in another sort of exchange. Um, the king's daughter, Rigmel, falls in love um, with him. And eventually, after much sort of debating and so on, they um, exchange uh, rings. Um, he says, no, I'm not going to accept you as a lover yet. I haven't proved myself, but okay, you know, I'll take a ring. And that, that shows our devotion to one another. Um, as always happens in romances, 
there's a wicked there's a wicked steward or someone who gives who sort of um, who spreads gossip and rumour. Horn is accused of adultery or, or, um, or, or of having a relationship with Rigmel. He's exiled and has to go to Ireland. Um, but in exile, he discovers that Rigmel's about to be married off um, to someone else. Um, and he returns disguised as a pilgrim. And um, at the marriage feast, he asks for a drink from Rigmel. And she brings him a drinking horn, punning on his own name. He drops his ring into the horn and takes a drink and then returns it to her. And so the ring, the gift, sort of comes back to her as a symbol, as a recognition sign, uh, if you like, that it's really him. Um, the, the identity then of the protagonist, Horn himself, and the ring and the horn that they drink from, kind of becomes merged. The person is like an object that circulates around the narrative and comes back as a, as a, as a form of gift, if you like, um, to complete that circle uh, that Derrida um, was talking about. Um, oh yeah, and I think I've got a picture here. just to remind us that <coughs> horns themselves were also hugely important symbolic objects um, in this period. This isn't a drinking horn, it's a blowing horn, a, a sounding horn. Um, the famous Savanac horn, uh, which is associated with the Savanac um, forest, um, now in the British Museum, um, belonged for you know, hundreds of years in, in the same uh, family. I think it's the Seymour um, family. Okay. Uh, around the edge of the horn are various scenes you know, related to romance and related to sort of narratives um, of its history um, as well. So that's the romance of horn from the 12th century. Uh, my second example is from a later Middle English romance. Again, a, a text that you're probably not familiar with. Uh, Sir Eglamour of Artois. Um, uh, it survives, um, it, for example, in a, in a lovely... Um, Again, 16th century manuscript uh, in the Bodleian Library. Um, Eglamour, the hero, is in love with uh, Christabel. Uh, but, as always in romances, uh, she has a jealous father. Uh, and the father sets him impossible tasks, hoping to get rid of him. Um, and only after he um, actually fulfills these tasks will um, he accept Eglamour um, as his daughter's uh, <coughs> husband. In that sense, Christabel, the woman, is also an object of exchange in this story. But Christabel gives Eglamour some gifts to help him on his way, including a magic ring and some magnificent hunting dogs. And his tasks uh, include fighting a, mo oh, fighting a, a giant, um, there's the dog and, and, and so on, uh, and fighting um, uh, a horrifying boar uh, who's been uh, chomping up other knights. You can see various bits of their bodies uh, around there. And later on, he has to fight another giant who's the brother of the first one and who had the boar as a pet. So <clears throat> you can see someone holding the boar's head up on a spike there as if to say to the giant, you know, as if to kind of goad the giant in, into action there. And the giant actually sort of gives a, a sort of lament, a poetic lament for his, his boar that's been killed. He calls him my little spotted hoggelin, my sort of little freckly piglet, he calls him. Um, so there's Eglamour having to fight all of these uh, monstrous creatures. Uh, <clears throat> at one point in the narrative, he comes back home um, and he and Christabel go to bed together. Um, and again, as always happens in romances, it only takes once. She falls pregnant. 
and um, when the pregnancy is discovered, she's cast away on a boat. Um, there she is um, on the boat there and uh, being sort of waved off, as if you like, by the very um, sort of almost Elizabethan looking ladies there. And just on the next page, uh, we see what happens to the child. The child is snatched away by Griffin um, and dropped in Egypt. Um, no? Uh, and you see actually the very the similarity to the story of the eagle and child. You may well know the pub um, just in St Giles, the eagle and child. The story there relates to another such romance type tale from the Stanley family, um, the Earls of Derby, uh, where a Stanley ancestor was supposed to have found a child in an eagle's nest. Now, it may well be that that's a story that was made up to cover for an illicit pregnancy or some type of thing like that. But anyway, the eagle and child became part of the Stanley coat of arms. Um, and so various pubs around the country have the eagle and child um, as, their, as their symbol if they were connected with Stanley uh, property. So we've got the griffin and child um, here. So the griffin um, drops the child, um, I think, in Egypt, and, and the king turns up. The king is hunting, that teeder, Home with the shield gone herida, that for the grip was hent. Dama, he sighed unto the querna. Mikkel of solas have he sena. This shield God has me sent. The child here becomes a gift, you know, to this uh, royal couple and is brought up as a, as a prince in their household. So uh, the griffin has dropped the child and the king finds the child. Moses in the bulrushes. It's that type of story, of course. The child, who's called Degrabel, um, it is, is, as I say, brought up like a prince and the rich cloak he was wrapped in and his unusual method of travel, uh, making the sort of meaningful circulating object Lewis Hyde was talking about in our, um, in our discussion earlier. At the age of 15, Degrabel goes to Egypt to compete in a tournament and the prize is a beautiful woman. Unbeknownst to him, it's his mother uh, who was washed ashore um, there. So he wins the tournament and marries his mother. Uh, but this is a happy, you know, this is romance. This is not Oedipus. Um, and so here we go. There's their wedding. And at the wedding, Christabel sees Degrabel's coat of arms, which include a griffin and a child. And seeing the coat of arms makes her remember, you know, what happened to, to her. Um, I've got a, a, a bit here from the wedding scene. Slightly, again, po possibly intentionally slightly comic as well, this sort of extreme version of, of the wedding. Thus graciously has he sped, his own mother has he wed, as he heard a Claire Carrera. His armes they bar bef him beforn. She thinks how her child a why was born, therefore sorrow she had her. She gret, therefore, she grieved, therefore, and sorrow gan marker, and all was for her sonis saka, a great swarning she marder. She sort of, you know, collapsed. <laughs> Quot no, said he, me lady Clara. Hui markers, though, so simple chera. Methinks thou art not gladder. <laughs> so, <laughs> very sort of emotional intelligence, very high on his uh, <laughs> qualities there. Lord, she replies, in thine arm is a fool, he say, a bird, a here a griffin, that some team raft a child from me, a knicht dare him bocht. In a, a scarlet mantle was he wounden, and with a gold girdle bounden, that full richly was rocked. 
The king swear a big Christus micht, in me forest gone he licht, a grip to lond him brocht. So disaster is averted um, and they rerun the tournament. <laughs> this time, Eglamour arrives. He's been wandering around looking for a, you know, uh, his, his lover and her child. Um, Eglamour arrives, wins the tournament, and they discover one another finally. The family's reunited. All these gifts and people circulating around uh, the Mediterranean are reunited <laughs> and, and come back together. So their journeys have accrued these obligations, debts, and so on, that pay us back, if you like, in the pleasure uh, of their homecoming. <coughs> Final text I'd, I want to talk about, just for the last couple of minutes, um, is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Perhaps the best known you know, single romance um, from, uh, from medieval England. Um, as we know, a brilliant text, written contemporary with Chaucer, so in the last part of the 14th century. The one manuscript uh, that we have <laughs> of it uh, is from around about 1400 or so. And again, we were very lucky uh, last year to be able to borrow uh, this priceless manuscript from the British Library and have it on display um, in the Bodleian. And we put it on display actually next to C.S. Lewis's copy um, of an edition of Gawain and the Green Knight, an edition by Tolkien, and if you like, C.S. Lewis's working copy of the poem, uh, containing loads and loads of his very small, very neat annotations um, to the text, things about vocabulary and about dialect, and, th and there was a little drawing of a knight with all the bits of his armour um, um, highlighted and, and labelled so that he knew what he was talking about, uh, presumably in tutorials. He could sort of sit there and test his, his pupils while having this open on his knee in Magdalen. So, so going in the Green Knight, um, um, early in the poem, as New Year's celebrations, games and gift giving are in full swing, King Arthur presides over a magnificent feast. But he's got this peculiar habit, uh, the poet tells us, he won't eat until he hears an intriguing story or a knightly challenge. And as if summoned by this Arthurian yearning for adventure, into the hall rides a huge knight, exquisitely dressed. Um, his um, beautiful clothing and powerful appearance, demanding the admiration of men and of women alike. In one hand, he holds a threatening axe, in the other, a festive holly branch. The courtiers stare at him in amazement because, of course, he and his horse are totally green. And um, there's the sort of bit of the poem which describes that. For wonder of his human harder, set in his semblant sena, he fared as frequa fada. He appeared as someone who was sort of up for a fight. And overall, enka grena. Um, the artist hasn't quite um, followed that through. You can see his head, the skin, you know, and, and his face isn't green. Uh, but he's done, you know, he's done pretty well um, there. As you'll remember, Gawain takes up the challenge of the Green Knight to chop off his head and in a year's time receive a return blow. Um, as you remember, he chops off the head, but the Green Knight's body picks up the head and sort of says, OK, see you in a year's time, I'm off. <laughs> and the following, leading up to the following Christmas, on his quest to find the Green Knight, Gawain stays with the very hospitable Sir Bertilac and his even more accommodating wife, whose attentions Gawain is at pains to resist without appearing impolite. And the two men make a pact that they will exchange whatever each wins during the day. Bertilac out hunting, Gawain back at the castle. And um, here the slide here illustrates 
uh, Gawain there in bed. Um, he's, there's a bit of the poem where it says that he closes his eyes pretending to be asleep. In, you know, she creeps into his room and into the curtain space uh, of the bed. I know it looks a bit like an NHS ward, you know, with the curtain. <laughs> but this is, you know, this is luxury fabric. You know, the curtain bed keeps the drafts out and gives you all important privacy. She's tickling him under the chin there, saying, you know, come on, wake up, Gawain. You know, I'm, uh, I'm ready for anything. Um, so, uh, Lady Bursa, like playfully tempts Gawain to commit adultery with her while her husband is safely out with the hunt. And Gawain's most difficult task of the whole romance is to avoid this breach of etiquette and refuse the numerous costly gifts also that she tries to press on him. Um, so here, this um, section of the poem, um, he's doing just that. It was worthy, quote the week. Um, ye have wired well better. Um, you've, you know, you've deserved you know, much better than I'm going to give you. But I'm proud of, of the priests that you put on me. I'm, I'm sort of proud that you esteem me so highly. And soberly your servant me sovereignly hold you. And your knicht he become. And Christial for elder. Christ pay you back. Thus they merled of much what till midmore and past. They chatted of this and that. Um, and I the lady let leak a leak a, a him loved much. And always the lady gave him the idea that she really fancied him. Um, the freck fared with defence and fetted full fared. The, the man sort of put up a defence but uh, was also very polite. And that's the kind of dilemma that he has all the time. So each day Bertilac brings back a beast that he's killed while hunting. Gawain exchanges these gifts with kisses that he's received from Bertilac's wife. One on the first day, two on the second, um, three on the third. Um, the poet describes with relish how Gawain gives Bertilac a proper kiss on the cheek, you know, just a peck, he's got to really do it properly, to play his role in the gift exchange to the full. A carefully staged role with courtiers all around judging whether he's performed it um, well. Now, I'm sure that you all know uh, the denouement uh, of the story. Uh, the genial host, Sir Bertilac, is also the menacing Green Knight. Gawain has nearly succeeded on his quest, but at the last minute, by accepting the gift of a girdle, a belt, um, from Lady Bertilac, uh, in the hope that it will magically protect him, he's not quite lived up to his promise um, to be honourable and to exchange gifts with Bertilac. Um, he's not kept the gift moving, if you like. He's not given it back to his host, um, to whom it rightfully uh, belongs. He's tried to keep it for himself. So he goes to find the Green Knight, and he <coughs> receives not you know, a, a proper blow on the head, but a small cut, a nick, on the back of the neck. Uh, and that cut, if you like, that wound, is the sign of that sort of gift exchange monke that's not quite giving, not quite uh, receiving. Um, Gawain returns to the Arthurian court. He thinks he's failed. They think he's done pretty well. You know, he's got a good 2-1, they think. And, you know, they're happy with that. Um, but he, re you know, he really wanted a first, and, you know, he's just not, you know, not quite happy. So he then wears the girdle, you know, across his armour as what he calls um, a sign uh, of his failure. Um, but really, the poet leaves the debate open for the audience. You know, has Gawain succeeded? Has he failed? Can human beings ever really totally succeed in the challenges that they um, set themselves? And the poet leaves that debate open um, to the audience. So there's much more that we could say uh, about the interaction between books, 
themselves as costly gift objects, the kinds of exchange and storytelling uh, that they contain. But time is also a precious commodity in short supply. And so I'm going to draw to a close now. And we've got a little bit of time um, for questions.